0: March 1st, 2023, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about Generations by William Strauss and Neil Howe, the book that I just finished up yesterday, published in 1991, 538 pages long, in the paperback version according to goodreads.com. The summary of the book reads as follows, and I quote, Hailed by national leaders as politically diverse as former Vice President Al Gore and former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, Generations has been heralded by reviewers as a brilliant, if somewhat unsettling, reassessment of where America is heading. William Strauss and Neil Howe posit the history of America as a succession of generational biographies beginning in 1584 and encompassing everyone through the children of today. Their bold theory is that each generation belongs to one of four types, and that these types repeat sequentially in a fixed pattern. The vision of generations allows us to plot a recurring cycle in American history, a cycle of spiritual awakenings and secular crises from the founding colonists through the present day and well into this millennium. Generations is at once a refreshing historical narrative and a thrilling intuitive leap that reorders not only our history books, but also our expectations for the 21st century. End quote. Now, you might be wondering Garrett, how could these guys possibly analyze the depth, the complexity, the <clears throat> mind boggling amount of particulars over the course of as their subtitle tells us 1584 to 2069 i mean 46 of these years have not even happened yet this is the year 2023 they're forecasting out to 2069 well to that i would say how is it that so many of us have weather apps on our phones and we have forecasts And do we have the same concerns about forecasts, that sometimes forecasts are wrong? Sure, but we still make use of forecasts, which is to say, we may not know precisely how much snow or rain or wind we're going to get on the front end. But when you see weather patterns, and there's a repeatability to those patterns, and then you start looking at the factors involved and how when these factors are coming from this direction, then we can anticipate a min-max, we can estimate that such and such will be generally the case on Friday. Then we can plan trips. So a good example of this would be back at the end of December, I had planned on taking my son, Solomon Emmanuel on a father-son trip to the Grand Canyon. He had just turned 13, or he was just about to, I I suppose I should say. He has now, because his birthday was December 30th, but he was just about to. And we were going to make plans in such a way as to be at the Grand Canyon on his birthday, just like I have done before in taking my oldest two sons, his older two brothers, on trips for their 13th birthdays. But we didn't, we didn't go. Solomon and I did not go on the father-son trip. And the reason for that is very simple. I got to looking at the forecast. I got to looking at some of the winter weather warnings that were coming up for our planned route, 13 hours and some change, to get to the Grand Canyon from Greeley, Colorado going a southerly way through Pagosa Springs onto Durango, et cetera. And there was going to be a pretty significant winter storm, or at least there was expected to be. There was the expectation of a dozen or more inches of snow. And so I talked with Solomon. I talked with my wife. I said, I don't think this is going to work. I don't think it's a good idea. We should probably go ahead and cancel. And by cancel, I mean postpone, because it's not that we are not going to go at all. It's that we should probably not go at this time if we want it to be safe and successful. If we want to make it there in one piece and also make it back in one piece, we should probably go a different time. If we want to enjoy getting there and back again in one piece, we should probably go at a different time. And so that's what we're planning on doing. The end of this month, we are going to take our trip, our father-son trip. The weather's looking not, you know, absolutely the best, the best, but there are going to be highs in the mid-50s, according to the forecasting right now, which, again, as I said at the top of this episode, it's March 1st. How can they know, right? How can they know what the weather might be the fourth or fifth week of March at the first week, on the first day of March? How can they do that? And the answer is very simple. It has everything to do with looking at the contributing factors and their relationship to one another, and also looking at repeating patterns. We typically, this time of year, see these kinds of patterns, and a front can come in from here or from there, and there's all these complicated pieces to it But what you and I get in the way of benefit is we maybe can plan our trip with our son to the Grand Canyon for a weekend where it's maybe not going to be snowy or rainy or overly cold, and we'll have a good time. We'll make it there and back again, Lord willing, at least as far as that dimension is concerned, as far as weather is concerned, we'll make it there and back again in one piece, safely and Having had a good time. Now, back to Generations by William Strauss and Neil Howe. What are they doing, right? What are they doing that they would look back through history, American history in particular, to the year 1584 and see a pattern? Well, in part, what they're doing is they're looking at the major crises. And also the high points that follow the resolution of the successful resolution of major crises in American history. And they're looking at the space of time between major crises. Let's say, for instance, the American Revolution. Let's say the Civil War. Let's say World War II. Those are all recognized to be major crises. And they're all about 80 years apart from each other, from the War for Independence to the Civil War, to World War II, to the present, each one of those spaces is about 80 years. Which is to say, if you were paying attention, the year 2020 (laughs) was kind of a big deal. Our lives will never be the same again, for better and, in some cases, we think for worse. But then again, look back on the last several crises in American history, and recognize and remember that those were not coming and going in a day. There was not a, oh, boom, World War II happened today. It started and it's over. The Civil War was not over in a day. The War for Independence was not over in a day. Each one of those major periods was built up to, and it took years to get through And then afterwards, there was a high point. There was a kind of euphoria culturally for Americans. It doesn't mean that everybody had high times, but it means that generally speaking, American society enjoyed success and having come through the crises in one piece, having survived. And what followed each one of those periods was a creative burst of energy that having been directed at war and conflict and fighting for years previous, was ready to apply its energies to something more positive, something more beneficial, something happier. And so that's what we get after these periods of crises. When the crises pass, we get high times. And those high times also have a certain range, and there's a certain repeatability to them. And even though they're different in their particulars, they are generally the same in some of their core dynamics. And so you have these high times, like Strauss and Howe would say, you have these high times wherein there is an outgrowth of our capabilities. People are creative they are artistic, they are inventive. There's innovation that happens that carries through, thankfully. But then after that, you have something of a resting on the laurels and you have the beginning of the recognition, if you will, that this is not going to last forever. In fact, it looks like we've crested. It looks like We are on a downward slope now. And then you start to get what they call a profit generation, which begins to warn that we are going downhill. And that profit generation is followed by a nomad generation, as Strauss and Howe would say. So you have a hero generation that gets American society through the crisis. You have an artistic generation generation, a creative generation that makes the most of the high time after the crisis has passed. You've got a profit generation that begins to see the signs of decline after the high times have crested and they warn about it. And then you've got a nomad generation, as they would call it. And these are the loners. These are the independent types. These are the ones who They are going to just fend for themselves, more or less. They're going to write their own ticket. They're going to do their own thing. You have the artists being raised by the heroes. The heroes are all high strung and stressed out, trying to get through the crisis. But their children are artists who want to be creative. They're tired of the high stress situations. It's always emergency mode. It's always reactive. How about we be procreative instead of just reactive. Can we do that? That's what the artist generation says. And after that, you've got the profit generation raised by the artists saying, hmm, all this creativity. Do you guys realize that some of the things you're creating are going to come back to bite us all? (laughs) Ah, then get out of here with that negativity. We were raised on negativity. We don't want it anymore. We're burnt out on that. It's It's high times. Can't you tell? So the creative types are not going to listen. The hero types, once they've gotten through the crisis and it's been high times for a while, they also are going to be more or less written off and they're tired. They're tired of being in crisis mode through the prime of life. So the prophets go somewhat unheeded, predictably, consistently, repeatedly, and their children after them kind of just want to do their own thing. Hedging bets, if you will, on the one hand, maybe good times will continue. Maybe it's not as bad as it sounds like from the previous generation, the profit generation. Maybe maybe it'll work out. Maybe it'll be all right. So they don't want to necessarily buy into the doom and gloom. But then there's a chance. There's a chance that the naysayers who are like, nah, get out of here with that buzzkill. There's a chance that maybe it could go either way. And so they're going to fend for themselves. They're going to check out. They're going to do their own thing. But then that also contributes to guaranteeing that there's going to be another crisis. Because the creative types, they're busy just doing whatever it enters their mind to do. Whatever they can conceive of, whatever they can imagine. They're like Dr. Malcolm in Jurassic Park. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. That's the creative types. At first, when the last crisis is still fresh, they're a little more cautious, but then as they put more and more miles between them and the crisis, they get a little less careful, a little more careless, and they contribute to the next crisis. The profits, they get Blown off, they get ignored, they get told, ah, get out of here with that. They get disillusioned from being written off and they frustrate their children and their children check out. And then before you know it, you've got another crisis on your hands. It makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. There's a kind of logic and rhythm to it. There's a saying I've heard that comes to mind here every time I'm trying to explain to somebody this Strauss Howe generational theory. And it has to do with the proverb, not a proverb like Old Testament proverbs, but a saying that strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. Hard times create strong men. There's a cyclical nature to it. There's a cyclical quality to it. And we see a lot of this in nature. We see a lot of this kind of repeating pattern. And so it's not, its to my way of thinking anyways, it's not super shocking that there would be a repeatability here. It's not shocking to me that there would be a certain predictability to that pattern. I know generally that apart from some major disruption, December is a month where there's likely to be snow. It'll be really unusual if it's not cold and it's not snowy. And so actually at the beginning of last year, knowing that Solomon was going to be turning 13 at the end of 2022, I was already saying we might have to play it by ear based on the weather, what the weather's doing. And depending on where he wants to go, he hadn't quite decided where he might like to go. And then we talked about it and came up with the grand Canyon as being a good option, but we knew on the front end, Months and months and months and months in advance. The December of 2022 had a strong likelihood of a winter storm interrupting our plans. Now, take my oldest two sons, Solomon's older brothers, Josiah and Eli, by contrast. Josiah's birthday is at the end of July. Eli's birthday is at the end of June. Going into the planning mode for our trips my trip with Josiah to Rapid City and Mount Rushmore, my trip with Eli to Albuquerque, New Mexico and Chaco Canyon. I did not at all worry myself that snow would interrupt our plans. I may be worried that, hey, we should take along some sunscreen and make sure we've packed water, but I wasn't worried about snow. And that's how we should probably think about this in a generational cycle. And this is probably how we should look at where we land. Now, I think here, I'm looking at a graph right now, which I'll put a link to in the description for this podcast episode. But it's a graph for the generations going back to uh, 1880 something, early 1880s. And it shows... From the silent generation and the lost generation before them, all the way through to the millennials, who would be my generation, the Zoomers, or Generation Z as they're called, which would be my four older boys, they're all Generation Z, to Generation Alpha, which would be early 2010s to mid-2020s, that would be my four youngest children, so I'm half and half here, raising Gen Zers and Generation Alphas. But I'm looking at this graph, and I'll just unpack it for you a little bit and explain, because here are some of the problems that they get into at the very, very end of the book. When you think about generations, right, we know that this is a category. We know that there are, if you were listening to yesterday's podcast episode, almost 200 references in the English Standard Version of the Bible, almost 200 references to generation. And so we know that a generation is a thing. We know that generations are a category biblically and also outside of the Bible. According to Strauss and Howe, for most all of history up until the modern era, the generation has been the unit of measure. So you don't talk about 20 years or 30 years necessarily. You might talk about how long a particular person's reign was, if they were king, or you might talk about how many years a certain war lasted or a certain famine or plague or what have you. You might talk about how many seasons, but generally the ancient world on up to the present or the near present thought in terms of generations. And so we know that this is a category. Now, various parties have put forward different numbers of years to mark the span of a generation, but it's difficult, right? Because when can you precisely say that one generation ends and another generation begins? And this is part of the problem when you come to Thomas Paine's The Rights of Man, where he posits that each generation has the right to revolution, has the right to reinvent itself. Each generation should be unbeholden to the previous generation and all previous generations. Now, Burke, diametrically opposed on that point, would say each generation has a duty, has an obligation to the generations that preceded. I would say there's a little bit of both here if repentance Is a necessary and desirable and possible thing that we're called to, sometimes for generational sins. There has to be some mechanism whereby we repent of the sins of the previous generation or the one before that, unless, unless (laughs) we're all just doomed. Whatever your parents did, whatever your grandparents did, you're stuck. But that's not what we read in the Bible. We don't see that. We actually see even in the king's lists for Israel and for Judah, a wicked king who leads Israel astray or leads Judah into idolatry, followed by sometimes a good king who follows after the Lord, who seeks God's face, who honors God in word and in deed. He judges justly. He is obedient. And he doesn't walk in the ways of his father or his grandfather if they were wicked kings. He walks in the ways of perhaps a throwback generation, three or four generations back. So we see that and we know that Burke can't be totally taken to the extreme where he says that each generation has a duty and a responsibility to walk in what previous generations have passed down. Now, Burke is right that we need to be careful and we need to be humble before we go throwing out the hard learned lessons, the hard won victories of previous generations. He's right about that. There's a certain stewardship piece here that we need to take seriously. But pain is not all wrong. Pain is not all wrong, that each generation has a choice to make. But then that's part of the problem. I remember feeling pain didn't sufficiently address when he talked about each generation having the right to revolution i would disre- i would disregard pain saying each generation has a right to revolution i would say each generation has a need for repenting and seeking god's face which is not rebellion even if it means breaking with tradition or departing from what your parents did how your parents thought what they prioritized that's not rebellion actually that's obedience which God says he desires more than sacrifice. But how long is a generation? That was my big question in reading Pain. How long is a generation? And I think Strauss and Howe have a compelling answer to that question. I think they do. Because basically, and by the way, they're the ones who named my generation. So millennials, fellow millennials, born 1981 to 1996, we have Strauss and Howe to thank for being called millennials. Not that it took, like, a ton of brain power to come up with that name. But nevertheless, the interest for them is when is each generation coming of age? When are they born? And therefore, when are they coming of age? And what part of the cycle is that, that they're hitting these landmarks that represent a very different mode of life and way of thinking and way of decision making a very different social role You know, it's not typical, for instance, to find a millennial in the U.S. Congress. You will find maybe some more and more, but it's not typical. It's a lot of older people. It's a lot of baby boomers, actually, still. Maybe some Gen X, but still a lot of baby boomers. And so 2020 hits, which Strauss and Howe predicted would be another crisis, right around there. Maybe not precisely like January 1st, 2020, go, right? Any more than I know on March 1st, whether it's going to be snowy on Christmas day, 2023. I don't know that. I I know there's a decent chance just based on the season, but it might be snowy a week before, It might be snowy a week after, it might be totally sunny and dry here in Greeley on December 25th. Well, so also, when they were writing this book in 1991 and said, we're going to be due for another crisis in 2020, look backwards, look back at the trend, look back at the repeating pattern, they made some general predictions of how each generation would respond to that crisis based on their cohort. My generation, the millennial generation, is really just... Coming into our own in mature adulthood. And now we've got this crisis still underway. And given when we were born in the seculum, as they call it, the seculum being these four phases adding up to one cycle, where we were born in the seculum influenced our mindset, our attitude, our approach to decision making and problem solving what generation or generations, what cohorts we were raised by. In my case, a couple of baby boomers or one baby boomer who was close to the silent generation, one who was close to Gen X. What generation or generations were we raised by? And also who's really in charge coming into the crisis and how are they relating based on When they were born, what was going on in their formative years, what was going on when they were coming of age, what was coming into the cultural conversation in the 70s and in the 80s, when they were just coming into the phase of life that I'm coming into. These are important considerations. Now, an interesting thing, I mean, it's all interesting, don't get me wrong, but an interesting thing is, according to the Strauss-Howe generational archetypes model, each generation takes on a certain personality or a certain role based on who they were raised by and what major events in the cycle are transpiring at given ages. The GI generation was a hero generation, as they would call them. Their priorities being community, affluence, technology, But this is why World War II hitting when it did saw the GI generation, government issue, general issue, going off and fighting and winning, making the sacrifices, getting it done. The next generation after the GIs was the silent generation. And I think part of the reason why they were the silent generation is because the GI generation was still flush with victory. And they did quite a lot of talking to where the silent generation really couldn't quite get a word in edgewise, per se. But they were an artist generation, interested in pluralism, expertise, due process. See, also, maybe not getting bowled over by the GIs. (laughs) Maybe not just getting pushed around, because the GIs always thought they knew what was best. And that's what we're going to do. And if you don't agree, then I'm going to fight you. And I'm going to win. After the artist generation comes the profit generation. The boomers are a profit generation. Their values are vision. Their values are values, actually, too. They value values and religion. And part of the reason why they value values and they value vision and they value religion is because they see trouble coming, but they're not the GIs. They're not silent, but they haven't been tested. They really didn't live through the last crises. They were born right after the last crises. The silent generation were children during the last crises. The GI generation were in the prime of life, and they were supposed to be the heroes. They were supposed to rescue not just the U.S., but the world from Nazism and the Imperial Japanese. And then after leading in opposition to the Soviet Union and fighting the Cold War, as it were. The silent generation, they were born just a touch too late to be able to say that they participated. Their participation was being quiet and staying out of the way and not making a fuss. Don't get in the way. The adults are trying to get us through the crisis. But that also means that when they were told to kind of just be quiet and stay out of the way, they took to art as their outlet. And then, After them, you get the boomers who were born after the crisis. So they didn't have quite that squelching of their childhood that the silent generation had. And they also didn't get tested. They are not battle tested like the GIs were. But boy, howdy, do they want to have a crisis of sorts like the GI generation did. They want to say that they also have done great things. But as close as they come is being prophets of doom and gloom. See also Al Gore going all over the world. And he's trying to save the world just like his parents' generation. But he's not. He's actually making a ginormous mess. Because he either is too selfish or dishonest or what? He's got a religious zeal about combating climate change. His value is the planet. His vision is... I would say a one world government where all of your decisions are made for you, you own nothing and are happy. That's pretty clearly his vision. And it's a religious mission. He has a religious prophetic vision that he is going around the world for the past 20 years to communicate. And now he's still at it trying to convince the world's leaders to make the most while we still have people in lockdown mentality. Let's make the most of this opportunity to take all their rights away, take all their property away, ration what they'll get and not throw a fit. The Gen Xers raised adjacent to the boomers are the nomads. They're into liberty, freedom, hands off my stuff, leave me alone. They're into survival. They care about honor, but they are also checked out. They're also not really interested in dealing with the problems, which is part of how we get these problems. That that generation is checked out. They can't be bothered. None of my business. They're like Kermit the Frog in the sweet tea memes, but that's none of my business. They know what's up. They're concerned about losing their liberties. They're not concerned enough to actually do something, and they wouldn't know where to start if they tried. And interestingly, there's a kind of yo-yo effect from generation to generation. The prophets are going out there like, hey, listen, everybody, we're going to have an old-time revival to save the planet or to save the country, and the nomads just want to be left alone. Just, you know what? Don't invite me to your revival. I don't want to hear it. Why can't you just let me alone? Why can't you just leave me be? Why can't you just honor my desire to be left alone? And then you get the millennial generation, which all our lives we've been getting (laughs) maligned, And there's a certain hypocritical quality to the maligning of our generation, but the previous generations came by it honestly because they were maligned. It's like each successive generation thinks that the next one isn't quite turning out like they were expecting, generally speaking. The millennial generation, we were raised on video games and with the internet being a thing and smartphones. And we know how to use this technology, and we're developing this technology, and hopefully we have a conscience and a fear of God. And if we don't yet, we really, really do need to in a jiffy. Like now would be good. Now would be good to seek God's face. But the millennial generation, interestingly enough, if you could believe it, has been preparing for this crisis our entire lives. And the reason I say that is because we have been overprotected and we have been preached to our entire lives by the previous two generations. The boomers have been preaching their values, their vision, their religion to the millennials for our entire lives. The nomads have been just checking out, right? I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Just leave me alone. And my generation, the millennials are somewhat more or less disgusted by The worst excesses of both the boomers and the Gen Xers were disgusted because we see their worst tendencies stubbornly committed to creating and exacerbating and prolonging the next crisis, which we are in now. All growing up, we were playing computer games, video games, for instance, and we would hear, oh, no. You're not going to turn out right. You guys are going to be mass shooters. You're going to be deviants and worthless and lazy and entitled. And it's like, no, no, I think some of us might, but not most of us, not like your guys' generations. I don't mean any disrespect, but let's just call some balls and strikes here. Who has run up the national debt to the point that my kids and my children's children are going to be hard pressed to pay it back? Who who was in charge? Who was in political power when all the money was spent so that the boomers in particular could cling to power just a little longer? They selfishly mortgaged all our future, all the while telling us, you don't have to work. But what they really were driving at is they don't want us to work hard. They don't want the millennials and the Gen Xers to work hard. Not really, truly, insofar as we have more energy and we might just take the ball and run with it. Once we've got the ball, it's going to be really hard to impossible for them to get it back. So they just don't want to let go of it in the first place. And yet they call us entitled. And yet they tell us that we're the lazy ones. We, in their mind, are the crisis. No, no. Let's review the response to COVID. Who was in political power, by and large? Boomers. And what was their response? Lock it all down. Shut it all down. And why? So that they could hold on to power whatever the cost, just a little longer, so that they could hold on to power. Not caring what the long-term ramifications are going to be for my generation. Not caring how this is going to stunt, potentially, our growth, personally, individually, as families, socially, economically. Not caring. You know, it's very curious that the baby boomers raised the millennial generation but cannot seem to stop treating us like we are the problem. At a certain point, I think it's time for us to recognize (sighs) this crisis was created by the boomers. That saying that you hear on the internet these days, okay, boomer, and not just directed towards boomers, but anybody who starts communicating the previous generations, the boomers' generation's values and mores, and scruples, and convictions, okay, boomer, it's rude, it is disrespectful, it is dismissive, because the boomers are not wrong about everything. And the millennials, my generation, we are going to be wrong about some very important things. And that, actually, even more important than us calling balls and strikes on the baby boomers and the Gen Xers for stubbornly clinging to power even when they have no idea what to do with it, even when it's just... To look nice on the shelf as a vanity piece, as a decoration that they can brag to their gray-haired friends about. Even more important than calling balls and strikes on the Gen Xers, who have checked out, done their own thing, not invested themselves, not paid attention, not studied up, not rolled up their sleeves. By the way, the Gen Xers are the most aborted generation in American history And do you know why they're called Gen X? Because it's like a solve for X, because demographers admitted, yeah, we don't know. We don't know what to do with these guys. They're a lost generation. They're a variable generation. A lot of their generation was not wanted and was aborted. Gen Xers born 1965 to 1980, a lot of them were aborted. And the ones who didn't get aborted were raised very, very poorly by the oldest boomers, very poorly. And so they just checked out. I'm not wanted. Well, okay. I'll just go do my own thing. And the crazy thing is the millennials look at all of the above and we see ourselves being overly protected. It's like the Gen Xers that raised millennials or The baby boomers that raised millennials, as Strauss and Howe point out, they overcompensated to some extent for how neglected Gen X was and how maligned, how undesired. It's like the baby boomers and the Gen Xers decided, I mean, the oldest Gen Xers, the youngest baby boomers decided, hey, maybe we do want to have kids after all. But it was like a self-actualization thing. Again, with the whole trophy on the shelf bit. It wasn't first and foremost that we were overprotected for our sake, because even when it wasn't good for us, we were overprotected. It was, we were overprotected for the sake of parents who didn't want to have to worry where we were, what was going on with us, what we were up to, what we were into. Even if we needed to be up to and into more than we were, we were overprotected. And interestingly enough, that also feeds into our response to the crisis, which is, you know what? I am sick and tired of being overprotected all the while you guys are contributing to the downfall of our civilization. You're not maintaining it. You're destroying it. So my generation looks at all of this and says, hey, is anybody going to do something? I mean, something good, something helpful? You guys are all just giving up. You're all just checking out. You're all just throwing in the towel. What? No, I'm sick of this. And think of all the years of playing video games and computer games and how that's been characterized by the older generations. Oh, you guys, you millennials, all you guys do is play Call of Duty. You're never going to amount to anything. Not like my generation. Look, look at our big house that we have paid off, that we bought years and years and years ago before... Our out-of-control spending of your money deflated the value of your wages. You're never going to catch up with us playing all these video games and computer games. And you know what my generation thinks, at least I, I'll raise my hand as a member of the millennial generation, you know what my generation thinks of all that? We think if we ever do get into a World War III scenario, there might be a very, very alarming percentage who have some weight to lose and they need to get in shape and they they need, they need Jesus and the capacity to forgive and pursue righteousness. But there's a whole lot in my generation that you might just be glad have been war gaming for 20, 30 years. You might just be glad that we're going to be the ones to fight and lead the fight and command decisions In World War III, which I don't, I I don't see us avoiding. I could be wrong. I don't see us avoiding it. It just seems like an inevitability. And the more I read, the more commentators I read, the more that seems to be the sense that it's like food poisoning and you feel your stomach gurgling and you feel that nausea. And it's like, okay, I don't know when we're going to pop here, but when we do, it's going to be a mess to clean up, a big mess. And the only way that we are ready to deal with it, is if we tune out the doom and gloom prophetic vision of the boomers who want nothing so much as to get the glory. They've stubbornly drove us to this point for decades. And now that they have created a crisis, they want to be the ones to solve the crisis so that they look like the heroes. See? And what is infuriating is that Gen Xers, if you listen to them, they really do believe they've internalized what the boomers said about them. And a lot of millennials have too. There's a listless quality to a lot of millennials and that has to go. That has got to change or else we are going to absolutely collapse. You know, I'm scrolling through a thread Forum with the title Gen X is the most aborted generation in American history. There's a quote from a New Orleans Saints fan Gen X is the most aborted generation in American history, with one out of every three of its potential members having been aborted. Two responses one, there's still too many of us. Two, too bad the trend didn't continue for millennials. Wow. Now, you're not a Saints fan. That's evil. Danilo responds, need more abortion, especially in urban environments. Wow. RAB responds, the price to pay for the sexual revolution and the great society. Wow. West Coast AG responds, also the most pointless generation ever. X123F45 responds, you mean like a massive reduction in crime 15 years after abortion was made legal? So, in other words, Gen Xers are filled with self-loathing, and they were told by the baby boomers who aborted their peers, 33% of their peers, you should be thankful, you should be grateful that we even allowed you to be born in the first place. What a horrible, horrible, evil thing to say, and yet these are the same people who want to tell my generation what's possible, what to aspire to, what not to try, what we're worth, No. No. I reject that. And if my peers in the millennial generation have any sense, they will also reject that because that is toxic. There's all this talk of toxic masculinity and you know what I think? I think it's a lot of boomers who emasculated the boys and the young men in the Gen X and Gen Y cohorts because, again, it went back to them wanting to stubbornly cling to power. They wanted power so much, so very, very much that they were willing to literally emasculate boys and young men so that they wouldn't be a threat, so that they, so that they wouldn't pose a threat socially, politically, culturally, religiously. It's sick. It's twisted. It's perverse. It's corrupt. It's evil. And more of that attitude is not going to fix what ails us right now. Now think of when God leads the children of Israel out of 430 years of hard bondage in Egypt and they are on the edge of the promised land and 12 spies are sent in to Canaan to scout it out. Think of the response when they come back and report their findings. 10 say the inhabitants of the land are giants. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. Two say, this is an exceedingly good land that God is going to give to us. And they start talking about all of the remarkable bounties to be had in Canaan. And the household of Israel, the people of Israel assembled together to hear this report murmur about stoning those two spies that delivered the good report. Fascinating. That's a fascinating insight into human nature. What do they talk about doing? Stoning their leadership that led them out of Egypt and returning to Egypt because maybe the Egyptians will take us back. That is what I would compare the generation of boomers and Gen Xers to. Wandering in the desert for 40 years until all that generation dies out, that might just be what it is. But we should pray that it's not wandering in the desert for 40 years, because I don't think China gives us 40 years. So we need to know what we're about right now, unless God is going to supernaturally intervene, which he absolutely could. But what do I do as a father of eight when I wake up in the morning? Do I say, I'm going to trust the Lord to provide, and I hit the snooze button on my alarm? Actually, I don't ever wake up to my alarm. I'm always well awake an hour, hour and a half before my alarm. But do I hit the snooze button, go back to sleep? Well, the Lord will provide. I'm just going to trust the Lord. No, no, I get to work. And I work as if I work for God, not for men, as unto the Lord, to please him, not to impress you, not to get you to speak well of me. Actually, it makes me nervous if people start speaking too well of me. Beware when men speak well of you. Jesus says, So their fathers did, the false prophets. I endeavor to do whatever my hand finds to do with all my strength, as unto the Lord. I'll sleep when I'm dead. (laughs) You should definitely, definitely check out Generations by Neil Howe and William Strauss. You should definitely check it out. Because here's the thing. The cycle, if they're right, the cycle repeats. If we get through this crisis, which I think is COVID, the lockdowns, and a stolen election, and then World War III. If we get through this, if we survive it, then we will have high times again. And my children's generation will be artists and inventors creating a better outcome than what we even can conceive of right now in the midst of the crisis. But God willing, if the world stands, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, this too shall pass. Like four seasons, winter doesn't last forever. The spring comes after winter. There will be a spring. But my generation, the millennials, if we don't take care on an individual basis, we will repeat the mistakes of the GI generation. And we should try not to do that. We should try not to exasperate our children. What is the check and balance on... Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother and the Lord for this is right. What is the check and balance on that? Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Do not provoke your children to wrath, but train them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Don't provoke your children to wrath. In other words, don't intentionally, flagrantly, uncaringly, sadistically frustrate and embarrass and humiliate and discourage them. Don't do that. I think also too, if we find ourselves in a situation where the older generation is exceedingly culpable for the current crisis, and they are by the way, we need to take into consideration as frustrating as it is, and it is, I say this as a millennial who at several key junctures have had, I, I have had my best efforts to provide for my family so that we are doing well, so that they're doing well. I've had those, in some sense, erased by the actions of the boomers, the selfish ambition of the boomers. But when we read in the New Testament, honor your father and mother, that means we have to temper our response. And I know that can be difficult. I know, personally, that can be very difficult. We have to temper our response. I think we have to be clear-eyed about it and say, this is what it is. And yet, like Joseph and his brothers, all of his brothers older than him, who plotted to murder him, and then, I suppose, they expected a thank you when they didn't murder him, when when they sold him into slavery. That is what I would compare the millennials and the Gen Xers' relationship with the boomers to. Hey, just be glad we didn't murder you in the womb. You're lucky to even be alive. When we sell you into slavery, just be glad that you're alive. You have dreams? You have hopes, dreams, and aspirations? Well, we're going to hate you for them and call you entitled. So be it. Remember what Joseph says to his brothers at the end of the day. But as for you, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. That many should be saved. That many should be kept alive. If we remember that, and if we keep in mind how these cycles go, and they come and they go... And they come again and they go again, and there is no new thing under the sun, like Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, then we don't have to be upset and angry and scared and fearful. And we definitely need to not be vengeful. But we do need to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. We do need to do that. There are young people who are committing suicide. One in 10, according to the CDC's own stats, attempted suicide. What was it, last year? Year before? 2021? I suppose it was the year before last now because it's 2023. One in 10, 10% of young people. So now we've progressed. We've gone from the older generations aborting children and that being heinous and neglecting them and abusing them in more traditional ways to overprotecting them, which is a kind of abuse as well, selfish, short-sighted, to now that older generation having created such conditions. And such a despair in young people now that the young people are killing themselves. But see, if there's a callous, uncaring, unfeeling, shrugging about that, do you know what? That is all the more proof positive that the people who've been creating these conditions do not care about us. They only care about themselves and they should not be in power. They should not be calling the shots. Now, when they hear that, they're going to react very poorly. But then that's where I say, too, it's something of a mercy. I know I said this in yesterday's episode, and I listened back through, and I thought, man, that's a really controversial thing to say, and that's probably going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. But you know what? It's true. It really is true that there's a kind of mercy. For those who love God, there's a mercy when the close of this life means they open their eyes in the hereafter, and eternity will be so sweet for them. For those who are wicked and who devised a very clever mousetrap? It's a mercy to the rest of us that their days are numbered. They don't live forever. In some sense, it's a waiting game. You know, there was a stat that was brought up here recently in a sermon at church talking about anxiety. Don't be anxious, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And what do we do? We're anxious about anxiety, among other things, which is ironic. We're anxious about anxiety. It's like, you know, maybe if you didn't obsess so much over your anxiety, you wouldn't be so anxious. Just a thought. Just a thought. Like, (laughs) maybe focus on what you're supposed to be doing. Maybe that's why you're anxious, is because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You got all this nervous energy expecting bad outcomes that you will get if all you do is sit around all day trying not to be anxious instead of doing something productive. Anyway. There was a stat that was referenced that 95% of Americans report anxiety at work. And the question was asked in passing, the question was asked, you know, maybe are the other 5% lying? And I leaned over to my wife and I said, no, the other 5% are the reason why there's so much anxiety for the 95%. (laughs) They are the stress. They're not stressed because they are the stress. (laughs) Look around the room. If you don't see anybody who's causing all the stress, it's probably you. <laughs> but really, truly, you know, consider with me, Matthew eleven, fifteen. Speaking of the gospel according to Matthew. Verses fifteen through seventeen, Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. That is to say, generations are a thing. Generations are a biblical category. In my generation, we can say we were dealt a bad hand in many ways. We could be frustrated with the cohort immediately above us, the Gen Xers, for just being glad that they weren't aborted. We could be frustrated with the boomers for being painfully out of touch and yet doggedly determined to say what will and won't happen. Ask me, ask me for permission. And, and what do they do too? They handpick their successors who are going to make sure that the good times, as they see it for them, keep a rolling. Pitting us against each other, dividing us. The House divided against itself cannot stand, and yet what do the Democrats do all day, every day, with identity politics? They do exactly that. They divide us as much as they possibly can. And we can't stand divided. Jesus said that. Not just Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was quoting Jesus. A house divided against itself cannot stand. We are a house almost infinitely divided against itself. There are as many minorities, on the other hand, as there are people in this country. Because every individual is a minority of one. You don't get much more minority than that. And yet, the way that Democrats in particular and the left in particular, also Republicans, not just Democrats, but the way that the boomer generation in particular pits us against one another incessantly. At a certain point, we have to say, you know, the real problem here is you. You make the short list of things that are an abomination to God and that he detests, according to his word, one who sows discord among brothers. I'm sorry, I read Olinsky's rules for radicals. I read it in his own words. That's the strategy. That's not a bug. That's a feature to pit us against each other, to create division, not to resolve it. And yet, what do they do? Somebody like me comes along and I'm like, hey, we need to go back to God's word and see what God's word would dictate as far as our unity. Not just unity, unity, when there is no unity, but what should we be unified about and on what basis should we have unity and how do we actually achieve unity instead of just saying abracadabra instead of Wingardium Leviosa. It's Wingardium Uniosa or something. I don't know. I don't know. I don't pay attention to Harry Potter. Somebody like me comes along and I'm like, hey, we need to be unified on truth and goodness and beauty. How about that? We might need to debate for a bit and study and think hard together for an extended period of time in order to figure out what unity needs to look like in order to be honorable and successful and rewarded. And the irony of ironies is that I'm the one who gets called divisive. Really? Oh, I think uh, you're being divisive right now. No, actually, I'm trying to unify, but you guys won't. (laughs) You don't actually want unity. You Gen Xers, you don't actually want unity. You want to keep on flying under the radar because the boomers are still watching. And the boomers, they don't want unity. They want submission. They want obedience to them at all costs. So that at the end of the day, the house always wins. And they are the house. My generation is going to have to grapple with this if we are to survive. And we should pray. We should pray to the Lord our God and ask for wisdom. Like Solomon When he is king after David, his father, when he is asked by God, what does he want? He prays for wisdom to lead this people. We're going to read 1 Kings 3, 1 through 15, because this is important. Starting in verse 1, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of Yahweh and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of Yahweh. Solomon loved Yahweh. Walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, Yahweh appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now... O Yahweh, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord. both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Don't miss it. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. James, half brother of Jesus. Yes, Mary had other children after Jesus was born. I don't care what the Roman Catholics say. I do care, but they're wrong, actually. That's what I meant. James says if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And you know what that means to me? That means, that means God wants us to ask him for wisdom. My third son, and Lord willing, we do take our father-son trip to the Grand Canyon before the end of this first quarter. I don't want a quarter to have passed before we have made good on our father-son trip. It might be later than we had hoped, but the weather was the weather. <laughs> we had Bojo's Pizza. We did, we did do something for his birthday, so that was good. But this is the reason why my third son is named Solomon. And interestingly, there are not a lot of Solomons. In fact, I don't know any Solomons, except my son Solomon. I don't see any of the Gen Xers naming their sons Solomon. I didn't I, I don't know of any boomers who named their sons Solomon. I don't know of any boomers or Gen Xers named Solomon. My son is named Solomon so that I remember this, so that he remembers this, so that his generation remembers this. My eldest son's middle name is David because David was a man of war and the man of war preceded the king whose name means peace. My oldest son's middle name is David so that I will remember that, so that my son's generation will remember that. My second son, his middle name is James so that I will remember that. God gives generously to all who ask for wisdom without finding fault. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. My second son's middle name is James, so that I will remember that, so that his generation will remember that, so that my sons will remember that. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's what Jesus says. Because you have asked this, and not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. It is in God's sovereign, holy, righteous, omnipotent, omniscient, omnisapient character, to answer prayers for wisdom in this way, and we should pray expectantly and eagerly because we need wisdom. Ladies and gentlemen, my generation needs wisdom. All generations need wisdom, but that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. Speaking of work, I need to get to it. Do check out Generations by Neil Howe and William Strauss. Let me know what you think, too. I would love to To hear your thoughts on the themes, their implications, what comes next. Were they right? Were they wrong? They were right about 2020. (laughs) They were right about that at least. We'll see. Even the best meteorologists put percentages on their forecasts. So we'll see. Only God knows for absolute certain. And thus we should ask Him what to be about, what to do. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time.